I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. Here we go. Another really beautiful episode. My guest for today is Dr. Nicole Siegfried, and she is an amazing soul. In this episode, we have the hard conversation about eating disorders and suicide. Somebody dies every 52 minutes from an eating disorder, and part of that statistic includes death by suicide. Nicole and I talk about wanting to create a really safe, sacred space for clients to feel that they can have this conversation, and we want to walk the journey with them. So many clients feel shame and fear and judgment that they do not bring it up to their therapist. Nicole and I want to say we are here to listen. Talking about it is what's actually going to help you move out of that thought. It'll let you know you are being seen, you are being heard, and you are being held. We also talk about the fact that Nicole said one of the many, because we know there's always many things that go into the recovery process, one for her was moving into her values. You cannot live in your values and simultaneously live in the eating disorder. They contradict each other. For Nicole, she realized that she wanted to live a more truthful and honest life. And that meant doing the harder thing. And whenever she engaged in a behavior, she let her supports know. Eventually, she didn't want to keep living in that way, so she moved away from behaviors and more and more into her values. We also talk about the fact that there is tremendous negative talk in an eating disorder, self-critical voice. And one of the things that clients need to do is have self-compassion, which I know is a very hard thing to do at the beginning. Self-compassion to hold the judgment, the criticism, to look at it, to be able to say, why are you here? How are you serving me? You're not. And instead of judging myself, I'm going to have a little self-compassion. It is a really, really beautiful episode, and I hope you all enjoy it and can take something from it. Okay, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. When I say we're in for a treat, 
I mean, we're in for a treat. We have Dr. Nicole Siegfried on, and we are actually, I am just very, very honored to have you on as a human being, Nicole, but also as somebody who is just recovering from COVID. And as you said, that was a really, really tough battle. So I just want to thank you for taking the time and energy for coming on and doing the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. I also just think the world of you. So I that's another reason. Likewise, likewise. Nicole, I, I love I love the work you do. I love what the messages you try to get across. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and then we'll sort of jump right into the podcast? Sure. So yes, I'm so honored to be here. And um, as you said, I, my name is Nicole Siegfried and I'm the chief clinical officer for Asana. I have been working with eating disorders um, for over 20 years and I've worked in different levels of care. Um, I actually started off um, in more of an academic setting, doing research and teaching and really though felt um, called to do more of the clinical work. And so over the last 15 years or so, that's when been my area of focus. Um, I'm recovered myself from an eating disorder and um, I had an eating disorder when I was in college. And I think that is what really, I always wanted to be a psychologist, um, but I, uh, having an eating disorder and going through that myself is really what made me passionate about this work and um, really helping other people achieve a full recovery as well. One of the things that I know you also do, and we didn't really talk about this before we started, but um, I know you also do a lot of work with eating disorders and suicide. Can you speak a little to that? Because unfortunately, Nicole, that is not an uncommon reason for death from an eating disorder. Yes. So when I started working um, in residential treatment, I'd realized that this was such a common presentation of our clients. And I had been woefully undertrained, to be quite frank, in how to really address and treat suicidality. I think like most clinicians, I had been trained on how to assess and send someone to the hospital. And I really think I had thought about this as the treatment and then it would be, they come back and you just kind of pick back up where you'd left off. And I found that that just was not enough. And so I always say, whatever that phrase is, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, I felt the need to get more training and expertise in that area because I just didn't feel as um, equipped or as educated um, in that area as others. And so that's that uh, sort of sparked my focus. And at that time, started I started partnering with some, I didn't even know this term, but suicidologists in the field. And these are people who are experts in, in um, suicide and the study of suicide. And um, really then um, dedicated my work um, to that area over the next several years and, and realized that a lot of the work that we do is focused on assessment and um, intervention in terms of hospitalization, which is so very important. But what's 
equally important, if not more important, is really um, meeting a client where they are and understanding um, their suicidality and and um, sort of taking a journey with them into the suicidal mind um, and understanding this concept of psych ache, which I didn't know what that was, but this this experience of psychological pain that is so intense and so severe that you would rather endure the pain of death than to live another moment in that psychological pain. And um, really being able to to meet clients there in that, to um, validate that and to walk alongside them in that may be the, the most important work that we can do. So I've been really um, focused on that over the last um, 10 to 15 years. Yeah. My heart is, is just feeling right now. I don't know if it's aching sadness, thinking about, about the, what did you call it? A psych ache? Psych ache. Yes. Um, or that my heart is feeling so big and blessed that people like you are so aware of the fact that as clinicians, we do have to walk the path with them because Definitely, there is times when it is necessary to send somebody to a hospital, but we don't ever want to shame them and say, whenever you talk about suicide, we're going to the hospital because then you're going to keep going back and forth and back and forth until somebody does take their life because they feel there's no safe place to talk about it. Absolutely. And I talk about that with clients often to say, the work that we're going to do around your suicidality is going to be here in therapy. Going to the hospital is really not treatment for your suicidality. It's more of a way to create safety. And that is very necessary and really important. Um, But we're going to do that until we can create enough safety to where you're in a place you can come back and we can do this work. And that's a real shift from the way that I've been trained. Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons why suicide is not unfortunately uncommon in this population is there's a real feeling of hopelessness that recovery is possible. And you, in your paperwork, you said that you, like most of us, I always felt, well, others can recover. I don't have the strength. I don't have the courage. I, I don't have, I, I don't have it, whatever it is in me. And so there is a lot of hopelessness. And one of the things that I love what shifted you a little bit into the recovery process was dropping into your values. And you said that that for you was an important shift. So can you say a little bit about that? Yes, for sure. And it's interesting because I don't know if you're like this, but I get questions all of the time about like, what was sort of your secret sauce? Like what? And it's difficult because I, I don't, sometimes it's hard to pinpoint, you know, first of all, it was 30 years ago. And, um, but second of all, it's, there was so many things, you know? Um, and, I don't think I really understood values work at that time. You know, I, I, um, I, I didn't understand what that meant, but 
in retrospect, in looking back, that was a very big part of the turn for me. Um, there were a couple of things, but that was one. And it was, I can remember distinctly I, making this conscious decision. I, 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 the person that I was in my eating disorder was not a person that I wanted to be. I, I was dishonest. Um, and, and, and that's part of, I have no judgment around that. I have compassion for myself at that time and compassion for anyone um, who's going through that. But I um, was dishonest. I was sneaky. I was unreliable. Um, these things that are not part of the person. And I was fake. I, I, I was not authentic. Um, and that was not the person I wanted to be. And so I didn't know. I, I also remember some distinct conversations with my therapist. And I remember um, at, at that time, she said, I mean, you have about a 50% chance of recovering. I, and, and so the statistics have changed, I know, but this was in the late 80s. And so she said, so what, she was trying to do it in a motivational way. She was saying, what makes you think that, I mean, why can't you be in that 50%? You know, you have a 50% chance. And I was like, oh gosh, I don't know. I, I felt hope at that point, but I also felt like, I don't know if I can stop this. I, I was so far in. So I remember making this decision of, okay, I don't know if I'm going to be in that 50%. But I do know that I, the part that I can change is I can be honest. So I am going to be an honest bulimic. <laughs> um, and so what that means for me is that I if, I, if someone asks me if I purged, I'm going to be honest. If, if I, um, I'm going to be honest to my therapist, I'll be honest to other people in my life. And I remember making that distinct shift. And as you know, it's very difficult to be honest and have an eating disorder. So that is, I can remember making a transition during that time of, of moving into my values, which moved me away from the eating disorder. Do you remember, and you may or may not, but how was that honesty received? How did it feel like I heard you say, and it is true when someone is, or at least from my experience, when I was in, in the, the thick of my struggles or even at any point, honesty was too threatening because I wasn't, I was afraid of having the eating disorder taken away. And we talk about this all the time. I'm not a liar either. I lied through my teeth during my eating disorder. So how was that received? How did it feel for you to do it? Can you remember this? Oh, yes. Well, also, I say that I was honest. There were some people that couldn't receive my honesty. I just thought of Jack Nicholson. There's, you can't handle the truth. Uh, there, yeah, there's some, there's some people who couldn't handle the truth. Um, but um, I, so it, it started off of um, being honest with my therapist, um, and and that was my first step. And then, um, you know, I was in college, and so I was living at home at this time, and it was being honest with my family, and it was it was difficult because I think my family, my parents specifically had a hard time. If I were to say I engaged in a behavior, 
They didn't want to hear that. Of course they didn't. They just, they wanted me to not do it. So that's one of the reasons I lied about it, you know? So it did help me because I would realize I'm going to have to have this conversation with my parents. If they ask me, Um, I'm going to have to say that I purged or binged or whatever it may be. Um, And so that started impacting um, my uh, behaviors because I, I, I realize this now, like, I don't think it was fair. Being honest doesn't mean that then people have to receive your honesty and say, thank you so much, Nicole, for just telling me that you binged on all of the food we were going to have this this Saturday or whatever. Thank you. You know, they were going to be upset about it. And so it, um, that I, you have to be able to hold, or I did, I had to be able to hold that, their reaction as well. I think the difference is, and by the way, this is where your courage shines through because you're right. Family members or friends, if you've, you know, eaten all their food or whatnot, they are not going to be like you said, thank you so much for saying. I will say though, with your therapist, it is, they, they will thank you. I thank my clients. I don't, say, okay, let's move on. I, we sit, I say, thank you for letting me in to this moment. What happened when we were talking about walking alongside with the, with the client talking about walking hand in hand, metaphorically with somebody when they can honestly tell you they did a behavior, honestly do that hard work to go inside and say, this is what provoked the behavior. And then honestly being able to work through that process. By the way, this doesn't all happen in one session, but that's why, first of all, recovery is hard work because you have to do a lot of work. And it is true though. It is a step closer to recovery. And I've said this before on the podcast, when I was a clinical director and a client would knock on the door and say, Karen, I just stole food from the kitchen. I'm like, you're awesome. Let's go have a session now. You're awesome for having the courage to tell me. Let's go talk about it. Otherwise, then, you know, you are just still being in your eating disorder. There was something else I was going to say, and I apologize. I, I forgot, but I do love that you say that if you're going to be in an eating disorder, being honest is very uncomfortable, right? There's that like, "Mm." so what is it like for you when, well, do you ever get triggered when clients are being honest and they're telling you their stories and whatnot? Do you ever get triggered in the field? Yeah, I love that question. And I've searched inside to say like, Nicole, are you being honest with yourself? Have you ever been triggered? And I truly can say I haven't. Um, in the field. I I think that what I see when clients come to us is their pain. And I have such compassion for that. And, and I can, I can meet them there, you know, based on my own experience. But if anything, it's a reminder of the pain that I was in and how an eating disorder isn't the answer to that. Um, so I, I can truly say, like, I've not been triggered by the use of your know, client's use of behaviors or um, 
you know, or their weight loss, or, you know, I, I, I can truly say that. Um, I think early on I would have been for sure. Um, and I would not have been ready to do this work at that point. You know, I think it took even on the other side of my recovery when I, you know, I wasn't using behaviors anymore. Um, I think that I still had some of the thought processes at first, and that probably wouldn't have been a good time for me to um, be providing care for clients. So I, um, you know, I was in graduate school at that time. So but so I think that in in the work that I've done, it, I, what I see is pain and struggle, and and um, it, it's not it's not enticing. Now, in all honesty, I mean there are times I don't want to feel. I mean, that, you know, I don't want to feel pain um, for sure. That sounds lovely, um, and so but. I realize the emotional pain. I, I realize that the eating disorder isn't the answer to that, um, that that would just create a different type of pain. And as I say all the time, it puts a stressor on top of a stressor. So you've got the stressor of the internal suffering, and then you add stress by using a behavior. And then the underlying stress never goes away. What do you think is the biggest myth when people about being recovered. And, and by the way, the reason why I ask this is it's one of the reasons for the podcast was all of these myths that clients were told or for whatever reason, just thought was going to happen once they were recovered. And I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm so sorry. You weren't given the truth. So what are some myths that you think people or you hear from clients that you think need to be debunked? Is that the right word? I'm never good with yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, gosh, I've got so many. I mean, I think the first is... Um, And this myth has been debunked um, quite often, but there's still sometimes work I have to do around it. Like I hear this from clients a lot. I hear this from some of my colleagues, like in the substance abuse field, that you're never truly fully recovered, that you're uh, you're always in recovery. And I I think that's a really important myth to debunk. Um, I, I feel like that when I think about being in recovery, um, I think about like that you're fighting off the urges every day. Um, and that is not what recovery is. Um, the part that I can agree with, I do think that the tendencies that set me up for the eating disorder, my genetic predisposition, my temperament, I have all of those things. Um, my avoidance of emotion, (laughs) that, that is something that I, um, worked through a lot in therapy and and um, continued to work on, but I I don't have urges to um, use eating disorder behaviors and and haven't as part of my eat as being recovered. Um, and so I think that's the first myth. The other myth that um, I hear is that. I think there's on the other side, this idea that if you are fully recovered, it means that you 
love your body every minute of every day. Like I have this image that people think it's like you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, mm-hmm, you, mm, you look good, you know, <laughs> and, and that is such, like, that is not what it's about, you know, um, and, or that you can never feel a critical feeling toward your body. Um, I mean, this is my perspective. Um, I mean, for myself, I can, I can sometimes feel critical, but I follow it with, self-compassion as well. And, and I, I wouldn't act on that criticism. Um, but that to me is, I love my body. Um, and I, I treat my body well, I want to take care of my body and I have some critical thoughts that go through my head head at time and I let those pass. So I think that is important, um, as part of, um, as part of understanding recovery, um, from my perspective. Um, so I think that's one of the myths I'm trying to think of some, Oh, I know another one. Oh, do you, do you, did you, were you going to say something? I always want to say something, <laughs> but I want to make sure we get to your other myth. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. I, I love the second one that you said. Um, the first one, yes. I mean, I am here like to stand on the rooftops and shout out to the world full recovery is possible. I've been fully recovered for 20, 25 years, blah, 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 blah. I love the other one though. When people are like, I don't always love my body. And I'm like, first of all, and this breaks my heart to say, I can't even believe these words come out of my mouth, but welcome to living in our culture. And it's saddens me, Nicole. It saddens me to say we live in a culture that normalizes picking apart your body, not loving your body. I don't know if it's because of COVID or politics or everything that's going on in the world, but I'm I'm feeling more saddened about what has been considered the norm, which it's it's anyway, that's a whole nother podcast. But again, the difference is now, I'm also a little narcissistic, so there are times when I look in the mirror and I think, good Lord, you're gorgeous. <laughs> I love that. And then there are times I look in the mirror and I think, are you kidding me? Is this the same body that I went to bed in with last night? The difference is, though, is you and I don't determine our self-worth by it. I don't not go to work that day. I don't restrict that day. I don't cancel plans with friends for dinner that night because I'm not feeling so good in my body. I look at myself in the mirror and go, that is not how I felt when I went to sleep last night. Oh, what time is my first client? And I walk out the door. That's the difference. Absolutely. And I talk about that with clients a lot as well, because I often say to them when they're in a place to hear it, that and maybe this is a, a myth in terms of recovery. I think to be fully recovered, you have to have a better, more positive body image than the general population. And when clients hear that, they just want to fall out of their chairs. And that doesn't mean you don't ever have a negative thought about your body um, or that you don't, you know, or you think every outfit looks good on it. I don't know. It doesn't mean that. But it, what it does mean, like, I am not going to spend my time in my discussion with my friends or my family, my colleagues around what my body looks like or how I'm going to lose 10 pounds by spring break. I don't know, whatever, you know, like that is not, that is such a, 
um, frankly, like a waste of time and a waste of connection. And so that is what I think is different for people who are fully recovered. I cringe, like you were saying, it makes your heart break. Like if I'm in a dressing room and I hear like the way like young girls are talking to themselves, um, it, I, it just, it, it gave me chills. Like it just, it breaks my heart. And, and in recover people who are fully recovered have learned they don't talk to themselves that way. And I, and, and th- so that is true. I would never talk to myself that way. Again, doesn't mean I don't ever have a negative thought, but there's a difference between thought and action. Yeah. That's it. That's it. What was the other myth you were going to bring up? Because I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want to miss any of these kernels. I think that when people think about full recovery, they think of a blissful life and that, um, that if on the other side of recovery, it means that you're not going to have any emotional pain. You're not going to go through hard things. You're not going to, suffer or struggle. And um, I think I'd said that in some of the, the questions I'd answered in preparation for this of, of that is not what recovery is. Uh, we still live this really hard and beautiful life and life is still going to be hard. And that to me is an important part of this. You're still going to have emotional pain, um, but you're going to allow yourself to feel it um, because you know on the other side of that is something worthwhile and and beautiful in its own way. And you also know that there is no eating disorder behavior that is actually going to solve or fully take or take away that pain. And I have said this time and time again on the podcast, I lost my father 15 years ago to brain cancer. And Nicole, there was not one eating disorder behavior that was going to stop my father from dying. But as a result of being fully recovered, I could sit with my father for the last three months of his life. Oh, I so relate to that. My father died a couple of years ago and and the same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, And so you can prolong the pain. Not only that, you can prolong the pain and then have it come out at a very... I'm going to say inopportune time. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but I've also talked about the fact that I grieved appropriately with the rest of my family and my friends because I wasn't using eating disorder behaviors to push the pain down. And then six months later, wake up one day and say, oh my God, I've lost my father. So yes, life is still filled with pain and tragedy, but that's the other thing. What people don't understand, or maybe they do, is they think if they're using behaviors, they won't feel any of the negative feelings. Our brains are not that sophisticated. We can't always determine the difference between a good feeling and a bad feeling. So instead, it shuts off all feelings. You can't just say, I'm only going to stop feeling bad, sad, hurt, angry, but I'm not going to turn off happiness, joy. It's either or. So if you turn off the negative feelings, you're also not experiencing the positive and neutral ones because neutral are very important too. And so then life does feel a little unworth living because you're not finding joy in anything. Mm 
You're not finding satisfaction in anything. You're not finding value in anything. You know, just now when we're talking about the hopelessness um, and, and kind of circling back to the beginning of the conversation, and obviously people people do not survive eating disorders. And, and it is not strictly because of suicide. It is because of incredible medical complications. What is it like for you working with a population with such a high mortality rate? Because we do work that every day. You know, I, I've not known anything different because I've, you know, since I've like dedicated my life to eating disorders, I've, this has been the population that I've worked with. So it's hard for me to even think of an alternative. I do think that it's very easy to, um, it, I think as a clinician, this is true for, for many people, but to suffer from compassion fatigue or burnout or discouragement um, based on some of these statistics that, that you're referencing. I think the reason I do this work in a treatment center is I have found the importance of team and that is what makes it feel more doable because I'm not alone in it. Um, I think that even, you know, in, in private practice, I think if I did private practice, it would be really important for me to have a group that I could consult with or cry with. I don't know, you know, um, but that connection for us as clinicians is so important as well. Um, and um, I, we've been talking about this a lot lately. I don't know if you've seen, um, Brene Brown has this video of empathy where it's like you're climbing down into, when you're empathic, it's like you're climbing down into the cellar with someone. That's where they are. You're climbing down with them um, to, to be with them in their negative emotion. and to be truly empathic, you have to do that. And so as clinicians, we have to climb down into that cellar eight times a day, you know? And, and so how do we climb back up? How do we have connection um, in, with others, um, things in our lives that bring us joy um, to be able to, um, to, to be able to do this work. So I think a lot about that of, of and I use that term a lot with, with clinicians of you've got to find your ways to climb back up out of the cellar. Um, climbing down is so important, but you have to have ways you climb back up to be able to care for yourself. It's a wonderful image. I, I, I mean, I, for some reason, cause I'm, I'm a lover of Brene Brown. I don't recall seeing that. I'll share, I'll share it with you. It's good. It's good. Perfect. Well, that leads me to ask, do you see a therapist? Because I Agree. We climb down and, you know, I don't, uh, this is never to say only clinicians that have recovered from eating disorders feel this way, but I do think people that have recovered from eating disorders have a somewhat of a different depth. I, I willingly and wantingly, I, I crawl down with every single client. I want that so badly. I suffered in silence. Um, I don't know about you, but when I had my eating disorder 30 years ago, there were no treatment centers. There is it. And so it's one of the reasons why I climbed down that to that cellar with my clients because how badly I wanted that. 
for myself at that time and didn't receive it. And even if it was there, I was afraid of judgment. So when you crawl out, though, what are things you do to take care of yourself? As I said, or as I asked, do you yourself see a therapist? I do. And I think this is one of the things that's really important um, as part, not just for eating disorders, but just in terms of a stigma with um with mental health, I, I think that, you know, no one has any qualms about sharing that they uh, go to their physician for their colonoscopy or, you know, um, but there's something about, I think it's gotten better, but there's something about like, oh, you see a therapist, you know, and, or, and maybe talking about myths that might mean that you're not um, fully recovered if you're seeing a therapist. So I, um, I went back to therapy after my father died and I, I knew that it had, again, it had nothing to do with, um, like relapsing into my eating disorder, but more to do with, I knew how important it was for me to grieve this and to, um, to step into that, knowing my tendency was to, uh, uh, avoid negative emotions. I didn't want to let myself do that. And so I, um, started back seeing a therapist then. Um, I, uh, believe that everyone should see a therapist. I have children. Uh, they know that they, they, they've seen the therapist, um, because that is, it's part of taking care of yourself. Um, and so I, I feel like that's really important. And one of the reasons that I, you know, share my recovery and share, um, uh, you know, my story is I, like you, I want people to feel like recovery is possible. I also want to decrease the stigma around getting help and, and claiming that you have had a mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I think it's people that don't understand emotional health well enough if they're going to judge somebody for going back into therapy if they're a clinician thinking oh maybe they're relapsing the way i look at it is i say oh someone now has enough self-awareness to know i need support on this it's the opposite of an eating disorder it's reaching out and saying i am not immune to human suffering i see it the other way You know, the other thing is, especially with stigma, with mental health, like with what is going on in our country right now, in the world, this is another reason that I do the podcast. There is no stigma. There is no shame. It is a very, very difficult time to be in on this earth, especially if you're struggling with something. I had a session with a client this morning and I I just sat back in awe and I said, after she said, which I'll tell you, I said, wow, like, I just need to sit with that for a minute. She said to me, Karen, one of the things that's happened since COVID is that I don't feel like I have anything to recover to anymore. And that's what was what I used a lot with my recovery process. She said, I no longer live on my own. I no longer live in Boston. I live back with my family. I don't see my friends. I don't have a job. 
I don't know what I'm recovering to anymore. I got to tell you, Nicole, that broke my heart because by the way, that's a really honest statement. That's, that's a statement, even if you're not struggling with an eating disorder, people in our country right now are thinking, what am I getting up for? And then put on top of it, an eating disorder. And I just said to her, I just want to sit with that statement for a minute and just honor it. And of course, we then set, went into, well, how do we, you know, how do you shift to recovering to what has changed? You know, again, I'm not going to go into the whole therapy session, everyone. <laughs> we don't all need to know how the therapy session went. But yeah, it's really hard. And then put on, on top of it, shame for mental health. People are not, are not reaching out for help. It's really, really complicated. It is. And I think that this, this goes along with the, the, what we were talking about earlier of um, life is hard. You know, you're going to have ups and downs. There are going to be pandemics. <laughs> there are going to be um, fires and hurricanes. I mean, um, and, and that is, that is what you're recovering to and that there is still joy in that. It's hard to believe that when you're in the midst of your eating disorder. Um, and there, that's where it does require some trust and faith. And that is um, difficult to grasp onto at times. And that's why I feel like your podcast is so important. I wish we didn't have podcasts at this time, but, but I wish I was so desperate for I didn't know anyone who had ever, I don't think I knew anyone who had an eating disorder. I definitely didn't know anyone who had recovered. And I was so desperate. I remember the book still that I read. Um, my name is Caroline was one of them um, that was, um, she's now a, um, she's written some other books now. She's, uh, uh, but she was the only person that, I, that, uh, that I'd found that was, it was a book about her being recovered. And I just, I just grasped onto that because I didn't know anybody. And I think that's a disservice that we often do by not talking about our recovery is that, um, or is that we don't give other people the opportunity to know that it's possible. So like, I almost feel like a commitment to that, uh, that it is so important so that other people can have hope. Yeah. It's interesting. I keep saying to my friends and family, there's been something ever since I started the podcast that I can feel a vibration in my chest that there's something more I want to do. And I don't know what it is. I haven't figured it out, but maybe it's it's just, as you said, being that voice of saying full recovery is possible full recovery is really hard to get to like all these things and also just taking away the shame. I mean, Nicole, if you knew the thoughts that I had or the behaviors that I did in my eating disorder, I think my clients would be shocked. They would be shocked. I wish I didn't judge myself so harshly when I was in my eating disorder and I was more truthful about what I was, what was really going through my psyche. 
the the existential suffering that I was experiencing, I was too embarrassed to tell anyone. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And I think, I think that for a long time, even though I developed compassion for myself, I um, still was afraid to share because I knew there was such a judgment and stigma. And I can remember being in graduate school and being told, don't do that. Don't share your own story because this isn't about you. And it's not. And it is. <laughs> I mean, it, it is in that it is part of who I am and part of what I've experienced. And when we share our stories, it can give other people the possibility that this could be something that happens for them as well. Yep, absolutely. What do you think was the hardest way you've had to learn an important lesson about this whole process? Well, I'm, I'm definitely someone who has to experience things to learn lessons. <laughs> I wish, I wish I could be the person who, um, you know, hears from someone else and is like, ah, that's what that I should not do that. <laughs> um, so I, I think that the way that I learn is through that process. And I guess that's been the, the hardest part is that, um, it's through experience that I learn things. <laughs> um, I think the, the hardest thing, but maybe that's the most beautiful also, like the biggest lesson that I've learned just, I guess this is like a life lesson, is that the most difficult, horrible, terrible times in my life really have had something beautiful on the other side and there was so long that I was so afraid of those things as part of, of, of the way I'm wired, I guess. But then also like in my eating disorders, like, oh, don't go there. You know, try to avoid those feelings. But the lesson has been, I have to go through those to get to something beautiful. So that's hard, <laughs> um, but that is, that's honest. What do you think is the most memorable moment you've experienced? And do you think you would have experienced it while you were in your eating disorder? This is so interesting. I think about this every year. I love to ski. I didn't grow up skiing. Um, it's something we started like as a family, as an adult. And almost every year that we go, I think about my recovery because I I would never have, it's, it's a mountaintop, literally a mountaintop experience for me, but like, I feel, um, it's a way that it sort of recenters me. I feel sort of at one with, um, my spiritual life. Um, I feel connected to my family and I always think about, I would never be able to do this if I had an eating disorder. I mean, my body wouldn't uh, be able to, but I think about like we, you know, we eat on the mountain, we get candy bars and chili and, and cornbread. And, and I would, I, it would be so horrible to have been distracted by worrying about that meal and not be present with my family um, to be in an eating disorder. So I'm always reminded in that, like, this is such a gift. 
and I get it every year. Um, I'm sure I have more, but that I, I get to be fully present and I get to experience these mountain, truly mountaintop moments as, as part of being recovered. Yeah. It's amazing. The interesting thing is I, for me, I was just thinking about this and, and this is also the other like myth about eating disorders. The most memorable moment for me was the passing of my father. And I would have not been able to experience it if I were in my eating disorder. And and meaning like, and, th- and then there's some other things that I just want to tack onto that, but about memorable moments. But I will never forget the last three months of my father's life. I will never forget my father's funeral. I will never forget sitting Shiva. I will never forget everybody that showed up. I will never forget seeing my mother as a widow for the first time. All of these things that are they pleasant memories? No. Are they powerful? Yes. I I sat and held my father's hand while he was in a hospital bed. And I thought only about my father's hand. I didn't think, what have I eaten today? What am I eating later? Who's bringing food to the hospital? I'm not gonna be able to get that, eat that. I'm gonna have to go somewhere else. And that was a powerful, powerful moment. Do I wish my father has not passed? Absolutely. That's not, that goes without saying. But was I proud to be sitting with him? as his daughter, fully present during the, I remember combing my father's hair. It was so cute. Oh, yes. Yes. There were some sweet moments. I also remember watching my father cry and I, it broke my heart, but you know what? He deserved me for me to feel sadness. Like my father was to me, was that amazing? Oh, we could talk all about, I have the same relationship with my father. I guess we could talk all about this because I have some very similar experiences. Yeah. That was the most memorable experience, and I would have never, ever experienced it if if I was in my eating disorder. The other thing that that I wanted to think of, that I thought of, what's with my words today, everybody? (laughs) When you said you have this moment every year when you go back skiing, some moments are so much fun that I still sometimes have to pinch myself and be like, I can't believe I live my life like this. I living in Boston. And for people who know me, I do not cook. Me neither, Karen. I don't know how to cook. Me neither. I know nothing. And everybody knows me for everybody who knows me and who's listening to this podcast right now. They're like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So I love going out to eat. It's like my most favorite thing at the end of the day. I meet up with friends. We sit at a nice bar. We order food. But the thing that is so, that I pinch myself for is, and I've said this before on the podcast, I am exhausted at the end of the day. I don't care what's on the menu. I will say to my friends or my partner or whoever I'm with, I'm too tired. You pick it. Because often what what we do is we get a ton of appetizers or a couple of meals. I remember spending 20 minutes looking at a menu, crying, asking the waiter, can you make that without oil? I don't think, can you add this? For me to be able to say, I'm exhausted. Uh, I'm just going to get a glass of wine and sit here while you look over the menu, whatever you're in the mood for. By the way, eating disorders is not just about food, but sometimes it's about food. And that 
freedom elates me. It, is that the right word? Again, I'm like, it. it is, it is a get freedom is the only thing I can think of. So, so it's the big moments and the, and the ones we experience for you every year. For me, unfortunately, every time I belly up to a bar. <laughs> You're right though. It is those little things that um, I, I remember I had somebody come to, to my house and she was like, oh my gosh, you've got like ice cream and peanut butter and like all of these things. I thought you were recovered from an eating disorder. It seems like, like you wouldn't be able to have those things around. And there would have been a time in my life I couldn't have had those things around because I would have uh, I would have binged and purged. But I was like, oh gosh, I don't even think about that. Like that, in fact, that's 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 the opposite. Like that is recovery is having those things in your refrigerator. And but I I take those things for granted. I think sometimes now I don't even think about that. Of uh, you know, um, and, and there would have been a time in my life I never would have thought that was possible. It's a wonderful feeling. It's a wonderful feeling if you've experienced being a prisoner in your own body from food to feel that kind of liberation. And the reason I do this podcast for anybody who's listening, you will get there if you keep trying. It's really hard work. There were times when I wanted to give up. There were days when I did, but I just kept moving. I I would pause and move forward. Nicole, I adore you. Likewise. It is such a pleasure having you on. We're going to have to wrap it up. And of course, before we end, I do have a final question for you. But before we get to that, is there anything that you want to add? Anything I didn't ask? Anything you want to say? Just that I I, I like how you just um, kind of wrapped things up. And I want people to know that as well, that I believe every single person is capable of recovery and it is not just something that is possible for some people um and so if there is somebody that's out there thinking it may not be that they may not be somebody who's able to recover i just hope that they were able to hear this and know that there's hope for each person absolutely All right, my darling, let me go for your final question. All right. So, Nicole, if you were a character in a movie, book, or television show, what genre would you live in? Okay, so when you say that, when you say genre, do you mean like... um, Would you live in a comedy? Would you live in a... Yes. Okay, what I want to live in is like a mystery thriller. Like, I would love to be Nancy Drew. I love, well, people don't even probably know who Nancy Drew is anymore, (laughs) but but I loved those books growing up. I just, and I feel like I could be a good sleuth. I just think I've got it in me. Now, what people who know me would probably say is that I'd be more likely to be in a comedy. I, you know, I'm constantly doing very funny things and and, um, creating some uh, funny moments, but I would love to be like a Sherlock Holmes or um, some kind of, uh, yeah, some kind of private investigator. Love it. Okay. You're adorable. And remind me at some point, I have to send you a picture. So this is funny. So everyone, just a little side note. So Sylvia, my mother, who everyone knows, oh, she's going to kill me for saying this. 
My mother turned 80 last year. <laughs> yes, everyone, I did just say that on a podcast. Um, I'm very proud of her turning 80. She acts like she's 22. Um, and we went, she said, for my 80th birthday, I want to go away with my children and my grandchildren, and I want to do a murder mystery weekend. I was like, you got to be kidding me. First of all, anybody who's listening, highly recommend it. We had a blast. But the thing that you must know is you get your character before you go, and you're not allowed to tell anybody, and you have to bring costumes wearing what your character is going to be like. I was the character that was murdered. So I got to play two characters. So after I got murdered, I went back into my room, came out as the detective wearing the detective hat. I had like the pipe, the glasses, the the trench coat and a notepad. And I just, I got to send you a picture. Oh my gosh. Well, I want to know what you've got to, to catch me up on what this is. Cause I want to do this. This would be so, so much fun. fun. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, this is what being recovered is all about. Right. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> Nicole, again, I cannot thank you enough for being here. It has been wonderful. It was my pleasure. I feel like we could just talk for hours. Um, so yeah, so uh, I've enjoyed it. I know. People are like, you two talk after, get in the podcast. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking to each one of you next week. Okay, stay safe. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.